you said you have tested positive for something. Yeah, for COVID. Uh, yeah, I'm fine. Um, pretty much asymptomatic. So um, oh, I think I had, had a rough day. So the book launch was actually on uh, on Saturday. And then as I was coming home, I uh, started to feel a little bit unwell. And then, you know, had a few glasses of wine, put the, uh, put the next day down to a hangover. Actually tested and yeah, it was positive. So, mm. but yeah, I'm definitely over the uh, over the worst right now. It's just a case of isolating, I guess. Excellent. You will be back at school to be in a COVID busy atmosphere with where all the germs run free. Um, exactly. Very soon. So this was the event at Pontypridd's bookshop on Saturday. For which congratulations, you were launching Blood on the Crossbar, the Dictatorship's World Cup. A cheery story to get Cymru fans in the mood for beating England on November the 29th. Absolutely, yeah. Some great reading material um, prior to another slightly um, slightly controversial World Cup. Yeah, I mean, I was talking with Chris Lee, whom you spoke to for his excellent book, The Defiant, um, talking about this World Cup, because there's a big chapter on Argentina. I know bits and pieces of what this 1978 World Cup was about. It led directly to Ozzy Ardiles and Ricky Bia joining Tottenham Hotspur and was it Alex Sabea and did and Maradona didn't join Sheffield United <laughs> that's right yeah unfortunately uh, Marad- Maradona didn't make to these uh, to these shows but yeah that's the um, that's the right era you're talking about yeah really um, really interesting era and then do you know I was watching um, a bit of a big match revisited recently and there was a really interesting uh, episode where Ozzy Ardiles was booed um, because the the game coincided with the the uh, outbreak of the the Falklands War, it was a really interesting interesting episode. I, I couldn't work out. Quite, I jumped in the middle of the episode, couldn't work out why, and then rewound. And there was a, a brief reference to it um, by the commentator. So, yeah, really interesting um, era for you know Anglo-Argentine relations. Hugely, because that then led. We're not going to do well. We have to do politics. So I can mention Thatcher. I'm a child of the '90s, so. Um, I'm very interested in what's going on with the English Labour movement because if they can't win this election, there's no hope for them. Um, Wells is different. Um, Mark Drakeford became a kind of softly spoken hero in the pandemic era. Does he still have good ratings? Yeah, I think he does. I think you know, inevitably, with um, with the the coronavirus, it was such a you know such a game of different opinions, and you know, people were so. Um, yeah, so extreme about it. Um, you're always going to put people's nose out of joint for that. But I think you know, he, you know, at the start of his tenure, he was kind of the the unknown man taken over from uh, Calvin Jones and just seen as um, you know a safe pair of hands, not exactly Mister uh, Mister Bombastic in um, in political terms. And then yeah, this pandemic drops on his lap. And yeah, I'd say you know, considering considering the opposition of, of uh, uh, Johnson over the bridge. Um, you know, when you compare him to him, I think uh, inevitably you're going to do quite well. Well, and as I realised last week, the chair of the English Football Association is also the Prince oh. of Wales. Uh, yeah. Now, he was the Duke of Cambridge. So it'll be a tough night for uh, the Windsor household when um, England play Wales on that 29th of November. I mean, with any luck, both England and Wales will have beaten America and Iran. But I don't know if you, Reese Richards, author of this book about the 1978 World Cup, have any care outside, obviously, the performance of Gareth and Aaron and uh, who else have you got um, at the left back? Ben Davies and all yeah. these all these great Welshmen and uh, Kiefer Moore. 
Outside of that, do you have any care whatsoever for what happens in this World Cup? Yeah, of course. Um, it's a huge, it's a huge moment for um, for Wales. I think it's, it's probably the most culturally significant thing to happen to us since Devolution in '97. It's really, it's impossible to um, to understate how massive it is for for Wales to be on um, on a global stage like this. I guess every Welsh person will will attest to this whenever you go on holiday. If people know where Wales is. They usually reference it by saying, "Well, it used to be Ryan Giggs, uh, but now it's Gareth Bale." Um, and this is, uh, you know, a huge opportunity for um, for Wales to really establish ourselves on the global scale. You know, with all the the, the terrible things that are happening in Qatar, you know, I think anyone with a brain could, would say that the World Cup shouldn't take place there, but it is going to be there. Um, and I think a lot of a lot of the bigger nations um, speak about potential boycott. I guess if you're English or if you're French or if you're German, there'll be another World Cup. But um, yeah, for us, you know, this this could be it. This our golden generation. Some of them may be arguably past their prime, but it is um, it is massive for us. We are going to be so fed up of being reminded of 1958. I imagine that 1958 has the same significance that 90 over there that 1966 does here, because that 58 team for Wales is held up as the glorious team of John Charles and uh, Cliff Jones and the rest of them. Yeah, you've got all church to, I guess it's time for uh, a new batch to, uh, to take over that crowd. 20, 2016 was an incredible time. Um, felt like half of, my, uh, half of my compatriots were out in France for that, uh, for that month. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, who knows, maybe the class of 2022 will be, uh, will be spoken about in 50 years' time, I hope so. We're also talking, we're talking on the 3rd of October, so this is very early. This won't go out till just before the Qatar World Cup. Um, As I'm sure you're aware, the book will sell well in the lead-up. It's just come out, it's called Blood on the Crossbar, the Dictatorship's World Cup. We will get there, but we're talking three days before Ellis James becomes a national symbol rather than just a Welsh symbol, because along with Matt Lucas, everyone's favourite alopecia Jew... Uh, Ellis James is hosting Fantasy Football League, the return. So Ellis James, who if you cut him, he bleeds dragon, um, is, is going to be all over our TV screens banging on about Wales. Is he a good ambassador for Camaray? Uh, I think he is, he, is, he is a great ambassador for Camaray. He's a Welsh speaker as well. From Carmarthen, I think? Yes, that's right. Yeah, he seems to have almost, you know, <laughs> don't have a go at it, but almost commodified being Welsh. But he does, he does us proud. He's not the... Uh, He's not the who's caught as that jacket kind of Welshman. He's um, he's got a head on his shoulders and uh, wears his heart on his sleeve. And even though he supports uh, yeah the other, the other team. team, the other team from down the M4 to my team, <laughs> yeah, he's a good bloke, isn't he? And he's um, you know approach, approaching that national treasure um, status. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I love listening to him and John Robbins, kind of two straight men. Uh, he's the the dad. He is gonna. I think write more and talk more about the identity and what it is to be Welsh. Evidently, Michael Sheen has also picked that up, uh, who's, he, and he really has turned into Richard Burton this year. This is this is Michael Sheen at his most Michael Sheenish, um, and of course you'll have the Manic Street Preachers probably writing the theme song, which will have come out by now. But it is it's a great time to be Welsh, not least because Wrexham are on Disney Plus. Are there kids in your class? Because you teach primary or secondary? Secondary school. Secondary. So there will be kids who will have watched Welcome to Wrexham on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, absolutely. And then I, I guess the knowledge of um, Deadpool, you know, I suppose they should really be watching that. 
but uh, the knowledge of Deadpool via Ryan Reynolds is kind of a, a, gate, a gateway drug to um, supporting Wrexham. I'm a long, I'm a long way away from Wrexham. They've got a, a lot of competition, particularly you know, obviously down here with Swansea and Cardiff, and then um, you know, the big Premier League teams. Yeah, they're becoming everyone's second favorite team. Um, that show was brilliant as well, and the, the way the two um, the two owners, Rob McElhenney and um, and Ryan Reynolds, the way they've adopted the the country and well the city um, to the hearts is really it's really lovely to see. I think it's a case of cultural appreciation rather than appropriation yeah. because it, you know it's so easy to reel out the old uh, Welsh stereotypes and the Welsh tropes, and they've really uh, they've really steered away from that and have actually appreciated what it is to be to be from Wales and in North Wales as well because it's you know it's the other side of the country for me there's a lot of stuff I didn't particularly know about the place and everything you see about Wales on television is very South Wales centric so I, I say this as somebody from the valleys but most people's go-to things about Wales are coal mines Tom Jones the valleys and rugby union and Barry so Island sh- and Barry Island so to show there's more to it than that um, even though it's you know it's not. It's not where I grew up, but it's, it's interesting to see that uh, that they're doing that. And it's really, yeah, I'm really encouraged by it. I think their hearts are in the right place, and yeah. um, I think they're a good pair. And the, the one thing that they didn't do is say, you know, what colour we need our shirts to be, because they're already red. They don't need to change the colour. How? And I, I've, I've spoken to Cardiff fans elsewhere in the football library, which is where we are, about what Vincent Tan tried to do, and indeed did briefly. It seemed like Cardiff City fans had to just swallow and move on because would you rather someone else take over the club? He seems to have, apart from sacking Steve Morrison after he did nothing wrong, he seemed to have calmed down recently. Yeah, he seems to have uh, removed himself from the uh, from the limelight slightly. I guess when he came in, he was the, um, the high-waisted, Bond villain-esque, um, <laughs> evil billionaire or millionaire that um, you don't want to take over your club. But it's, I guess it's... It's a pill you have to swallow if um, you know if your team's going to be at the top end of this um, or near the top end, as was of this capitalist thing the football has uh, has become. I mean, I think the same about Manchester United fans. They don't like their owners, but once your club reaches a certain size, it's so expensive to run a football club. The only people you're going to attract are nation states and dodgy billionaires. So. I mean, I, I can't foresee a situation in the future where Cardiff is run by local businessmen or fans. Kind of desensitise yourself to it and switch off, if you can, every other Saturday and Tuesday. And there's good moments and bad moments. We've had a lot more bad recently. But what is encouraging about the team is the amount of young Welsh people, young Welsh players we have. People like uh, Ruben Colwyn, Isaac Davis, uh, Mark Harris, you know, I don't expect to see a great team on the pitch, but it is nice to see local players because, you know, even even in the days of Neil Warnock when we were in the Premier League, that was something that was missing and kind of a, a stick to beat Cardiff with, again, from those people down the M4. Um, so it's, it's, it is nice to see young players and, you know, young local players long may that continue. I think yeah, that's what yeah. everyone wants, really. Watford have got, there's a kid called Joe Hungbo who got off the bench in our 4-0 win against Stoke this weekend and hopefully we will muller the Swans. We will turn them into pate and foie gras in our next game because we've got them on Wednesday at home, I think. Yeah, if you could, please. So, I yeah, mean, we'll, we'll try and do you a favour. Very good manager they've got at Swansea and they seem to have turned it around in the last month, but enough of them. 
and indeed enough of Cardiff. But I just wanted to mention Cardiff because your Twitter bio does say you're the father of two future Cardiff City fans. Uh, how right. old are they at the moment? Uh, they are four. Uh, well, they'll be five and two in November. Oh, brilliant. Four, so, yeah, so you take them gradually. When will you take them to their first game? Because my first game was age eight. My cousin went at five, which I think was too early. Right, yeah, well, uh, the eldest has been. Oh. Um, I told him he had to wait until he was four. He was more interested in the mascot, really. So yeah, I've yeah, taken yeah. him to see Cardiff. And then our most recent um, Nations League game where Wales played uh, Poland, I, t- I took him to that. And uh, he loved that. So he was a bit disinterested in Cardiff, really, and then loved Wales. But I would say the same about myself. Uh, yes, <laughs> well, so he must be, obviously, if you're five, you don't know about the Kefala system and get even homosexuality so much. And you may be aware of it through telly. But there are certain things that the younger fans will not be aware of when this great parade of football. Once they ask, where's that hulking robot from Man City? Uh, and yeah, I admire Norway. They didn't want to be in Qatar so much, they didn't qualify. Uh, but Wales, <laughs> Wales have done, and I will be wishing Wales well, especially against Iran and the USA. Yeah, um, well. You are most welcome. Because um, I always say my old science teacher, the late Josh Oliver Tudor-Jones, who was a Swansea fan, admittedly, but one of the he was kind of the pillar of Welshness. I had an actual Welshman in my life, and he taught science and... His enthusiasm was such that if you bottled Welshness, it would come out in him. So I have very fond memories of Josh Jones. He may well have been alive in the 1958 World Cup segue, uh, which um, Wales qualified for. They didn't qualify in 78. In fact, only 14 teams could actually qualify. So whereas this World Cup coming up, you've got, is it 30 qualifiers? Only 14 teams qualified, and only five of those were from outside Europe. Reese Richards, name those five teams. The outside European teams. Yes. Um, so we got Tunisia. Representing Africa. I don't know why I picked them first. They said that seems like the hardest choice. Uh, Argentina. Argentina as hosts. Brazil. Brazil, yep. Uh, Iran. Iran, the Asia representative. Asia representative. Uh, right, there's always one. Mexico. And Mexico for North America. And there's one more South American team. Peru. Peru. Let's start there. Because this is uh, the fixture that you've talked about with Chris Lee in um, The Outside Right and also in the book, uh, in the yes, in the book The Defiant, which is competition for your book, Blood on the Crossbar, The Dictatorship's World Cup. Now, in the bump, you call this the most controversial World Cup game ever. Argentina 6, Peru 0. After Argentina had drawn 0-0 with Brazil, uh, they needed to advance to the second group stage, which would then pick the, the finalists. And they did get enough goals to win. Now, have you watched this game? Have you had footage yes, of have. it? Yeah, yeah, of course. Is there, as they say when you've murdered someone, beyond reasonable doubt that they fixed it? There's... <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I don't think there is, to carry on your, your murder uh, analogy, I don't think there is a smoking gun. There is a lot of, if not evidence, there's a lot of speculation. There's pl- things uh, to look at. Um, and I, I kind of go through and, and do a kind of myth-busting exercise in the um, in the book and go through each one, kind of weighing up the evidence and then, I guess, leaving the... Um, the reader to make their own their own conclusion about um, whether or not this uh, is beyond reasonable doubt. Mm. But I think the result itself on paper 
although Peru had a strong uh, strong tournament, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't think the result is particularly anomalous when you look at um, the nature of things on the continent. So in South America at the time, they, they were obsessed with, and still are, to be honest, the idea of football hierarchy, where Argentina, despite at this point, never never winning the World Cup, and this was their first time hosting a World Cup, they very much saw themselves as the kings of that, probably alongside um, Brazil, though Brazil had already hosted and won three World Cups. Um, and then in the lower tiers, they cast um, Peru and Chile and Uruguay and, and all, all the rest, but particularly they would see Peru as beneath them. So 6-0 you know, would be a fairly... OK, it's, it's, it's a hammer in, but for Argentina to beat... Peru by that score at home when they need to and Peru are already out of it on the surface and seeing that um, that conspicuous but then when you add up all the other evidence that's where that's where the controversy comes in and mm-hmm. it's quite it's quite interesting how um, how that controversy has, and the things that people were worried about has changed over time so prior to the game taking place the two biggest concerns were number one the, go- the goalkeeper of Peru uh, Roman Kuroga who was Argentinian. He's from Rosario, in Rosario, where the game took place, uh, but then a naturalised Peruvian citizen. They were worried that he would, or he would maybe would be convinced or would want to throw the game. Goalkeepers are weird. Anyway, I think anyone will, uh, <laughs> anyone who's played the game will say this. And El Loco, as he, was, as he was christened, he had a mistake in him. He made some strange choices. He made strange choices in the, um, in the game before and was, was kind of known as a, a sweeper-keeper when there was no need for such a thing, when you know people still played with sweepers. But he's a guy who would, you know, he'd find himself 40 yards up the field um, for, for no reason. And uh, I think people who, who had a dog in the fight, so in particular Brazil, who got knocked out due to the 6-0, um, Argentina 6-0 win, they were terrified about Kiroga making a mistake or throwing the game or doing something of that ilk. And then the obvious other thing that Brazil were concerned about beforehand was the fact that Argentina kicked off later than them. So the final game of the of the um, group stages, Brazil had beaten Poland that afternoon. Won the game 3-1 against a really good Poland side, uh, part of their kind of 1970s golden generation. But uh, a great performance from, from Brazil, nonetheless, that left Argentina with the unenviable task of scoring four goals to win. So they had to win, sorry, by four goals to go through. It would never happen now. You know, simultaneous kickoffs are the norm now. But it wasn't at the time. And Argentina always kicked off in the evening. I guess they were the uh, headline act of, um, if you think about it, as, as a, like a music festival. They were the knit hosts, which made them the headline act, which meant they always went on last. So that is, you know, suspicious, um, fortuitous for Argentina. But you have to remember that uh, Argentina never intended to play in Rosario. Had they won all their first round games, they would have been over Mercedes uh, in Group A. Ah, that's up... why all their matches in the second round were in Rosario. I did wonder why that was the case. Yeah, that's it. It was meant to be just, to be honest, it was meant to be a procession through Mercedes. They were going to win every game. They were going to play every game in El Monumental. That's where the final would be, and it would be simple. But uh, yeah, they lost to Italy, which is the Catamounts Pigeons. And then, you know, this, this situation happened. So it definitely, it definitely wasn't pre-planned. That was always when they would kick off. But it fell in Argentina's laps. It was very fortuitous, and no way were they going to uh, were they going to change it. The um, Brazilian Federation actually tried to lean on um, 
lean on Argentina. I'm sorry, lean on FIFA to change it. But um, the junta had a the junta had a hand on on FIFA. Uh, the organizer of the of the tournament, Michael Lacoste, great friends with Jao Avalanche, and there was no way that FIFA would, would change the kickoff time to accommodate Brazil and to make it fairer. But um, FIFA, FIFA never learned from this. Um, if you know about the, the disgrace of Gijon, Correct. Uh, four, four years later, um, a similar situation where this uh, staggered kickoff times and uh, West Germany, and I think is it Austria? Um, yes, it was. Yeah, yeah conspired to, to play out this ridiculous 1-0 win for, Germany, for West Germany that suits them both. And that, I can say, if you watch that on YouTube, that is incredibly conspicuous. Yeah, the, the Spaniards are booing because they, they twigged what's happening very early. Havalanche had been FIFA president from 1974. I wonder what FIFA was like as an organisation. Uh, it was about 75 years old at the time, so bestowing that the, well, governing football. They'd given Argentina the World Cup in 1966. That's right, yeah. So between 66 and 76, um, there are half a dozen or more leaders of Argentina. So it's a massive state of turmoil. This doesn't dissuade FIFA. Um, there is a, kind of a plan in the background, should they have to, to switch the tournament to Belgium and Holland. But I don't think it really gathers any momentum. Um, the coup, when, um, when the, the military dictatorship is established and when they oust um, Isabel Perón, that in a way guarantees that the World Cup will happen, um, because mainly because the the hunter sees the the potential of stage in the World Cup um, for two reasons: there domestically, in order to get everyone on the same page in Argentina to kind of unite this divided country, this this split up of of Peronists, of um, enemies of the dictatorship, of of the military itself. Um, I interviewed a man called Robert Cox, who is the um, the editor of the Buenos Aires Herald, and he said at the time there was a slogan that Heinz, Heinz beans had 27 different flavours or was made from 27 different beans, something like that. And Argentina had 27 different guerrilla groups um, spanning the left right spectrum. So, you know, it was a, a, an era of massive turmoil, um, assassination on the street, political prisoners, your bombs going off constantly. And then the, the military comes in and through brutal oppression, stabilizes this and um, those attacks are less frequent. And although massive restrictions of freedom, um, they kind of ensure this World Cup will actually take place, and the people won't be harmed because they have a, they have a ceasefire with the um, with the, the Montaneros, who are the main um, the main opponents, who vow they won't touch anybody, uh, they won't touch any foreign press, or they won't harm any visitors during the World Cup. Which brings me to the second objective they had, which was to show off Argentina to the world, to show that, you know, they, as as their European counterparts, they could host this World Cup. They were as good as Brazil, they were as good as Chile, Uruguay, all the, these places who'd hosted it before, they were equal to them. And I think they wanted to show off, you know, they've got a colonial history with um, with Spain and with Italy. They wanted to show that they'd kind of grown up, I guess, and, and had, had matured and were able to, to host this um, to host this this tournament. And the dictatorship wanted to show that they had the infrastructure and the organisation um, to do just that. So they massively saw the opportunities. However, their opponents saw the opportunities as well. They knew that by inviting the foreign press in, by opening Argentina to the world, they could reveal what was actually going on behind doors and, what, and the atrocities that the uh, 
dictatorship were, were committing. So you had the, um, not the march of the mothers, but the kind of standing firm of the mothers, which Chris talks about in his book, which I didn't know about, and people should know about that more, because this was an entire lost generation uh, of kids, and the mothers were demanding answers. Um, how much did it get into the foreign press? Did you read the accounts of, say, The Times or The Guardian or The Observer out there? Yeah, the, the mothers of Plaza Mayor. So, um, yeah, every Thursday they would march. Um, yeah, demand, like you say, demanded to know what happened to their to their children. Um, the Buenos Aires Herald was the only uh, English-language publication in Argentina, and that was the only one that wasn't in the hands of the state. So they would publish the, the names of the missing people. Because to be honest, they've, at first their readership was um, foreign businessmen, and just the remnants of the... Um, British community in Argentina. So there wasn't much call for domestic news in English. If you wanted to know, I think you, you could have found out, but really a lot wasn't known. And people were kept in bubbles, um, particularly the players. They, they didn't really know what was going on. And I don't know how much interest it was to the foreign press because, you know, there were so many dictatorships were the norm across uh, across South America. There's also a huge, um, you know, it's in the middle of the Cold War, so there's a huge left-wing, right-wing debate in, in, in the media everywhere. This is why um, countries like West Germany had a, had a real uneasy relationship with, with the Junta, where they, they were terrified of the swell of left-wing agitators around the world. So um, the Baden-Meinhof gang, which yes. you might be familiar with, Very they were... So, yeah. Yeah, so they were responsible for a lot of things happening in the in the um, a lot of terrorism in the seventies in West Germany, and I think there was a, a fear of this spider web of um, of left wing ter- terrorists, I guess, uh, across the globe. So yeah, the, the setting is really important there. The fact that it takes place during the Cold War. But to answer your question about about foreign press, I think prior to the World Cup, a lot of it wasn't known. And the World Cup itself was kind of a conduit for for that conversation. Yeah, whereas David Conn and uh, the the Insight team at the Sunday Times have been brilliant at just pointing out what a load of nonsense. And Eric Cantona, bless Eric Cantona, the moral conscience of football has been yeah. very outspoken. The book is Blood on the Crossbar, the Dictatorship's World Cup. So all told, England not qualifying... Uh, was a blessing. England were absent, having finished level on points with Italy in the qualifiers in a group of four teams. Five groups had three teams, including Scotland's. I don't know if you look at the qualifying stages, but it just surprised me that instead of groups of six and five that we get now because of the expansion of the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia, uh, you have very small groups. So Scotland played four games and qualified for the World Cup. England played six and we're in Italy's group. Yeah, um, I do feature the qualifying, particularly Scotland's qualifying group. Um, I'll give you a guess as to why. Uh, is it because Wales were in it? We were in it, yes. yes. Uh, so there's a very controversial, it's this, uh, this, uh, very brief story in, in the book, but you know, as a Welsh writer, I felt my duty to, um, to, to bring it up. Um, it's the Wales-Scotland qualifier in Anfield. Oh. So... In '76, there was a, um, a European qualifier that took place in Cardiff's Ninian Park, and as as was, you know, common at the time, there was crowd trouble there, which meant the Ninian Park was um, was banned as a 
uh, as a venue. So Wales had a choice there of where to play this crucial match against Scotland, and the FAW and all the wisdom. So FAW were you know quite a beloved um, institution in Wales currently. At the time, not so much. Um, in all their wisdom, they didn't really have all that much money. So to fill the coffers, they decided to sell an extra 20,000 tickets by moving the game from uh, Wrexham's racecourse, where Wales never lost. They decided to move to Anfield, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, to any geographical geniuses is actually across the border in England. And the place was full of Scottish people. And the partisan Scottish crowd, though it was a home game for Wales, uh, drag Scotland over the line to uh, to win that game. Two 0 helped in no small part, I should say, by a, a handball from a certain uh, certain Joe Jordan. That hardly ever gets mentioned in Wales now. To be never, honest, never, never forgive, never forget. Uh, Scotland missed out. So, hang on, would that have been the final qualifier, Wales Scotland, or did did Wales have to play Scotland in the quali- in the playoffs? Uh, no, it, it was part of the group stages. Um, it's, oh know, no, no, no! In 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 twenty twenty two, recently in March. Oh, we would have. Yeah, that would have been the play they lost to. Uh, they lost to Ukraine. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It would have. That yeah, that absolutely could have happened again. But there was call. Yeah. And I was. I was listening on the train to Wales against Ukraine, and the noise of the crowd. I don't know if you were there, but you got them over the line, and it was scintillating listening to it. Yeah, I was there. Um, it was an incredible, uh, an incredible end to a very anxious uh, ninety minute, ninety minutes. Usually, I can I can enjoy these things. Um, I'm not I'm not a nail biter fan. I can usually find something to enjoy, um, but that was arduous. <laughs> Ninety <laughs> minutes. Yes, you must have hugged the kids a little more tightly afterwards. So uh, Wales didn't qualify. Scotland did qualify. Hungary qualified. This was interesting. Um, do you think they were happy about what happened that they had to after the group stages have this playoff? The Hungarians. Yes. Uh, I don't cover this in the book, actually, but yeah, I can't imagine an extra an extra hurdle is ever uh, ever particularly helpful. Yes, and then they... to end up in uh, in Argentina's group, the one that uh, yes. everyone wanted to avoid. Yes, and they were. Um, it was Bolivia. They had to go to Bolivia and play. Uh, right. Yeah. So that that was quite common. Well, up until relatively recently, for a uh, cross continent um, cross continent playoff. I think the the most famous one would be, um, and I wonder if Chris mentions this in his book actually. Is the Chile Russia one, or USSR, I should say, of uh, '73? I wrote an article about this, and not so long ago, is the the game that never was. Have you heard of this one? Uh, yes, because you wrote a piece for these Football Times. That's it. Yeah. So the second leg, um, where the USSR refused to travel. That's right. He did mention um, this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Due to the um, the recent coup where Pinochet um, ousted um, democratically elected uh, Salvador Allende, um, and that yeah. The USSR refused to travel due to the fact that the stadium, Stadio Nacional, was used effectively as a, as a detention centre. Uh, but FIFA, again, in all their wisdom and all their benevolence and their compassion, decided that the game had to take place. So, yeah, um, Chile won the game 1-0 um, against, well, no, nobody. No. It was 11 versus 0. What a bizarre scaf- <laughs> What a bizarre scene that was. Football bloody hell. So... Um... <laughs> We have uh, the group stages, two group stages, no quarterfinals, no semifinals. Uh, Iran in 1978 were under the Shah. They lost 3-0 to Holland, who were without Johan Cruyff. Uh, Scotland beat Holland without Cruyff, where Archie Gemmell did a Johan Cruyff impression and got himself a starring role in the film Train Spotting. This, this Dutch, because Holland had reached the 74 final, they reached 78, having demolished Austria 5-1, Italy 2-1, and they drew 1-1 with Germany. So Holland became uh, Argentina's match in the final 
But Holland surely had enough quality besides Cruyff to make it to the final, as shown. And it's it's stupid to ask, well, what if, what if Cruyff had played? But would it not have been nicer without him? Because he was such a mardy arse. Yeah. Cruyff. Yeah, there's an interesting. I, I talk about this uh, in the book a little bit. He was <laughs> Marty Asker. It's great to <laughs> also a bit of a. Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe if you reach this level in, in any profession, you you earn this. I'm not yeah, sure. sure. But he he had his hands all over the team. So a huge factor was the um, the selection of the goalkeeper. Yeah. So he he was a huge fan of um, young blood. Young blood, yeah. Who could um, young blood? Who could play up from the back? But the the coach um, Michel's in seventy four, so sorry in seventy eight would be Happel. Um, didn't see this as that that important, and the fact that Cruyff wasn't there meant that he didn't choose Youngblood um, until it was an injury that forced him back into the game because you know the swirling winds of uh, of fate at play there again. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think everyone loves the seventy four team uh, and the way they they played in the the. First twenty minutes of our final, but um, you could argue the seventy-eight had a little bit more about them, and they, you know, they maybe they spread the wealth in terms of talent around around the team a little better. I mean, if you look at Resenbrink, Johan Nishkins was injured for injured in and out of the team, um, but the, yeah, there's definitely quality there. I don't know if I subscribe to the fact that, or not fact, the opinion that some people have that they were the best team in the um, in the World Cup. I think Argentina were equal to them, and then I think actually in the final. It was, it was a fully deserved win for Argentina. I think, particularly in the in extra time, they just had an extra level that um, the Netherlands didn't have. But um, yeah, certainly, certainly a great team. One of the, one of the probably the great teams of that era. And and mention of the Netherlands. Not only is your book in the shops of Pontypridd in the fine independent bookshop, and I'm a huge fan of any bookshop. There's one that's just opened its premises in Balham. And so hopefully this book, Blood on the Crossbar, the Dictatorship's World Cup, will be sold there. But someone has spotted it on the shelves amongst the tulips in Amsterdam. How about that? Yeah, incredible. I had no idea it was there. Um, I guess you kind of relinquish control of all things once you actually hit send on the book. Yep. But yeah, like discoveries like that are incredible. I think for any writer, really, it, it's, it, you know, it's nice to track your book on Amazon and, and you know, see it's this you know, whatever number in whatever chart. But seeing your book on a bookshelf of a read shop is um you know, that that's what you write, isn't it? Yeah, and you can move it next to like Joyce. <laughs> so do you want Ulysses oh, or do you want Blood on the Crossbar? <laughs> actually you're the English teacher and I'm reading this book by Ryan Wilson. Uh, which uh, I'm actually leaning the phone on. It's called Let That Be a Lesson. Uh, And Ryan is now a radio producer, but he was a secondary school teacher, and I'm really enjoying this book. So before, and I should have asked this at the beginning, this would have been my killer kind of Nick Ferrari opening question, but how on earth, with reports, planning, marking, sleeping, rugby coaching, I imagine, extracurricular activity, and watching Cardiff sack another manager... How on earth do you have time to write this book? Yeah, um, I don't know. I think is the short answer. Looking back, I have this conversation with my wife a lot, which I imagine the answer is possibly my wife. I'm picking up a lot of slack um, in every other aspect of my life. Yeah, I'm not sure. Looking back, uh, when you were in the storm, I guess I was just getting my head down and snatching a few hours um, here or there once the kids went to bed and you know, on weekends and stuff. The odd, the odd free lesson that I, that I have. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure where, where I fitted in. Maybe it was kind of a um, a burner's watch situation that I've since forgotten. Maybe I was just stopping the clock and just 
right then during that time. You know, it took me like 18 months, two years to complete. Um, so I gave myself time and then, yeah, I guess picked it up where I could. Yeah, it, it's just occurred to me that Mr Richard's book could be in the school library. Have you already snuck a copy in there? Uh, well, my school unfortunately doesn't have a school library oh, thanks okay. to... Uh, you know, all the cuts in education over I, the last... You know, I, uh... I, was, I was half fearing you'd say that, and that is why this country is a mess and why the football library is such an oasis, uh, a fertile ground for books, because your book rubs shoulders with Beautiful Bridesmaids Dressed in Orange by Gary Thacker, Angels with Dirty Faces by Jonathan Wilson, that I'm sure you had a look at in of research. Um, gosh, and Ozzy Ardiles has written a book. I don't know if Mario Kempes has written a book. He does, uh, I think it might be called El Matador, I think it's a, okay. uh, an autobiography. But yeah, those names you've mentioned, um, yeah, the imposter syndrome kind of hits hard mm. when you when you get tweets coming in where I see my book. Um, frequently people have, have got like a little Argentina, like like you're, like you're describing Argentina mm-hmm. collections of the bookcases and I see mine and I think, wow. Guillem Balaguer's on Maradona, Reese yeah. Richards from the Ronda Valley's book about the Dictatorship's World Cup. Uh, I mentioned Kempes because he scored two goals in the final. Um, before talking about Bertoni, who scored the winner, and I read this piece about Mario Goetze this morning, one of very few men, I think the stat is 32 men have scored goals in a World Cup final, and one was Bertoni. But a couple of players did use the World Cup as a springboard for their career. Kronkel of Austria went to Barcelona, Kubias yep. of Peru, who was at Porto, went on to play for Fort Lauderdale in the NASL. So who, who are the kind of unsung characters, uh, less Kempes who won the Golden Boot uh, in this World Cup? Who did you come away with an appreciation of? Uh, I think in terms of the, the teams, uh, I really love the Poland side. Um, they've got some great players. Lato, the, um, I guess, the, the man who threw the gauntlet down for uh, Monde Lewandowski, just a classic Polish uh, goal scorer. Boniek and Dana, the, mm. that trifecta of forwards is brilliant. Um, there's a moment in the Argent- where they play Argentina, actually, um, in a first, second round game, where there's, there's two moments for Poland where the right man is in the right place at the right time and it's the wrong result for them happens. So Dana scuffs a penalty. It's one of the worst penalties you'll ever see. Um, of his quality to do it, it's just um, unfathomable. He kind of unapologetically taps the ball towards the goalkeeper, which I think it must be down to the just the bit atmosphere of Rosario just really um, weighing on him. And then Lato gets a chance that he um, that misses a sitter later in that game. So you just think, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't believe in fate, but if I did, I'd, I'd definitely cite that as an example. But yeah, I really, really like the um, the Polish team. <laughs> Somebody who I really like actually as well um, as a player is Graham Souness. Oh, lovely. So, yes, of course. Yeah, he's dropped for the first two teams. He's not selected for the first two teams. First two games, sorry. Um, Scotland famously underestimated um, Peru and thought they'd have too much skill and too much power for them. And then you've got you've got Sunes who possessed both those things. A you know, great player, but also a physical specimen in the middle of the park. And he's coming off an assist in the European Cup final. Mm-hmm. He's the, the you know he's the big money signing from Middlesbrough to, to Liverpool. You know, really, you know, with the the genesis of his star, and he's not selected till, till the final game. He's Holland, which they, you know, he plays no small part in um, in the victory there. So I had an appreciation of Souness after that. Well, yes, and he's got a couple of memoirs, and you forget Graham Souness pontificating about Jack Grealish. He was 
a very good player. Not at Tottenham he wasn't, because he rather um, queered his pitch there. And in fact, was it Tam Diel had to go and talk to his parents? I read about this, because I've written this book about the Youth Cup, and Sunes is in it. Um, oh, coming through at Spurs with Steve Perryman, and he was just homesick. Not the first one. Apparently Chris Coleman. Chris Coleman was homesick, I read the other day, at Manchester City. Right, okay. <laughs> yeah, because it's too far from the Welsh Valleys. It's- it is quite far from Swansea, to be fair. No, yeah, we've never yeah, left Swansea. He's, he's not a Valley boy, Coleman. He's uh, he's uh, Swansea City. Yes. But I did take you as an interesting fact for you. So, um, Robert Page will be taking us to... Um, the great Bob Page, Cup. former captain of Pro- Watford in the Premier League, 1999-2000. See, I knew I was onto a winner of this from uh-huh. the Valleys, as was Jimmy Murphy, our coach in 1958, which means we've qualified, qualified for four major tournaments now, and 75% of the time it's been with a coach from the Ronda Valleys. Very good. If only Uh-oh. there was a, a male voice choir and a brass band like Tredegar who could come together and write some kind of anthem, which may well, by the time this goes out in the middle of November, it may well have happened. Uh, yes, this article I read about Mario Götze, who um, might well be on the plane to Qatar, but he is working his way back to fitness in Frankfurt. But he is one of the people, like Jeff Hurst and Martin Peters and Andres Iniesta and... Ronaldo and Emmanuel Petit. This chap Bertoni scored a goal to win the World Cup, the home World Cup for Argentina. One, how did the players react to the junta um, using their success for political gain? And two, Bertoni must have been asked every day of his life how he felt 44 years ago. Yeah, so Bertoni's goal is, um, at this point, well, it's a third goal. Kempes is is on a hand-trick and uh, not not a uh, to get anything away from Bertone, he's a great player. But it feels like everyone in the Dutch defence is just looking at Kempes to say, right, you're not scoring this time. And the ball finds itself to Bertone and he strolls, uh, rolls it into an open net. The, the team themselves were horrified um, to be associated with um, with the Junta. Kempes has said, look, we wore Albi Celeste, the, the, the blue and white of Argentina. We didn't wear the green of the military. Minotti has called it a, a, an assassination on on the team to be to be linked with them, but I, I think the the thing that's happening here is that um, for Argentina it took such a long time to come to terms with the damage of of the final military dictatorship. It took even longer to come to terms with winning the World Cup. So everything associated with with that dictatorship is such an open wound to so many people. Everything associated with it just naturally is um, is criticised and is 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 too hurtful to remember. It's, it's, it's different now. They played a memorial match some 30 years later and now I think the players are given the credit that they maybe didn't get for the first 20 years. But you've got to remember what was really important for the legacy as well was what happened in 86. So in winning the World Cup in Mexico where they, obviously they had no influence over what happened, the creation of this star in um, in Diego Maradona, this, you know, this archetypal story of a boy from boy from the slums who, who becomes the, the king of Argentina, all of a sudden they've got this second World Cup and they can kind of forget about the controversial one. It doesn't matter if they if they bought it or if they if they cheated for it because now they have a legitimate one. And then that, that first one, even though no fault of the players, is it's to a certain extent forgotten about for a really long time. So I think yeah, if you listen to an interview a lot of them say, look, we accept that it happened during a dark time of the history, but also you know, it hurts that um, maybe they don't get the, the credit that they deserve. 
Yeah, it is a shame. And I've been saying for months it's Argentina or Brazil to win the World Cup. Uh, Chris Evans, whom I spoke to, not that one, the one from the set pieces, said, don't be so sure, but I think this is Lionel Messi's last chance to become a better player than Maradona by virtue of winning a World Cup. But it's not... I think Messi will be playing more of a team role now. They can't just give it to Messi now because he's getting older. Um, But he will be one of the stars of this World Cup and Argentina are one of the favourites. And they they will win this World Cup fair and square if they do win it because there's no junta. Is there a bit of a disappointment that Qatar own his player registration? Because he plays for Paris Saint-Germain now. He's not Messi of Barcelona. He's Messi of a Qatar-constructed uber force. Or does that not matter? I don't think it matters. I think um, I think most fans are able to dissociate those things. Because, I mean, how many teams these days have don't have something on the conscience? You know, there's so many connections to nation-states, dodgy billionaires. There's, you know, the idea of a... The good local football club, you know, call me call me massively cynical, but I yeah I don't think the matters. And I think to be honest, I mean, this is the way I look at it anyway. International football is kind of a, almost a safe haven away from that, away from the the rampant commercialism, the um, just the the cynicism, the, all, all the all the things that Gary Neville in his his new book actually um, kind of rages against. To some of us, international football. You know, even though the fact it's taking place in Qatar, they're awful human rights record, and you know, a place shouldn't take place. But there's still an innocence to international football that is yeah. that is long gone in in club football. So I think, to be honest, to answer your question, I don't think they see him as PSG's or Qatar's Messi. They see they still see him as even though he left when he was a kid. You know, if he wins that World Cup for them, he's just he's the boy from Rosario. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, it occurs to me, Gareth Bale, does he play for a club today? He plays in uh, the MLS for LAFC. Oh, yeah. God, I was completely... Because it reminded me that if he was a free agent, how Robson Carnu was a free agent when uh, when you went to the Euros. But yes, he does play for Los Angeles. Yeah, uh, sorry. And yeah, so the, the Wales team is going to be built around Bale. Where's he going to play? Well, this is, this is the interesting thing. He's either going to be um, a centre-forward, which means Kiefer Moore doesn't play, mm-hmm. or you play him out on the wing which means you can't play Dan James and um, and Brendan Johnson. And Rob Page seems to really trust Dan James, um, even though he's not, you know, he's not the player in the final third that Johnson and Bale are. Yeah, so I said, you know, that's, a, that's why he's the coach and I'm not. Indeed. And it's Aaron Ramsey in the middle with, who are the others? So I'd, well, again... It'd be Ramsey and Allen, yeah. um, and then you either play Ethan Ampadu in the middle, or you drop him, uh, drop him back into defence. But I think I think we need bodies in the middle. Hopefully, we play more than three games, and we have to try a couple of these formations out. That would be amazing for for someone who learned tactics under Graham Taylor and many others, Rob Page, to be able to yeah. put those into practice. And the, the American coach and the well, the Iran coach, Carlos Keroff, that will be a hell of a battle. Uh, both for Southgate and Page, but it's a good tester for the people of Wales. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing the Cymru nationalism, uh, the Hiraith. I suppose <laughs> is there, there'll be lots of Hiraith uh, during the World Cup, won't there? Oh, it'll be you know, 
It'll, it'll, there'll be an outpouring of, of nationalism, yeah, don't worry. Yeah, um, and I know the, the Wales-England game is on in the evening. Is there plans at school to put on a... I don't know if you've got the budget for this. If you haven't got a library, why are you going to have a projector? But I remember watching <laughs> the 1998 World Cup uh, on a big screen in the DT centre when I was 10. That's a very vivid memory. And they wheeled in a massive telly. Are you going to encourage kids to stay at school and watch the game? Yeah, I think the Iran game is uh, is an afternoon kickoff. I think it might be an 11, 11 a.m. kickoff. So yeah, we'll have to we'll have to think of something, won't we? We can't have four hundred kids ringing in sick. No, absolutely. Well, that is the head teacher's plan. Uh, but Mr. Richards will be there, um, probably with a scarf and a Wales shirt, like everyone else, uh, giving it large for the bread of heaven. Before the what do you sing before the game? Uh, Zombie Nation. Oh, <laughs> but of course. Uh, Rhys Richard, the, the book is Blood on the Crossbar, the Dictatorship's World Cup, available in Pontypridd and Amsterdam. Um, will there be another book or is that it now? There will be another book, yeah. Um, yeah, plans are afoot. Um, I guess while I'm off now with these five days with COVID, um, I can put something together and uh, finalise that. But uh, you're not going to turn out to me yet, no spoilers. But yes, thank you very much. Although you are Welsh... And if I were to guess, it would be something to do with that. But, you know, I don't know. It could be anything. But um, you are you still writing for these Football Times and for Football Pink? Yeah, so I've been quite... Um, well, obviously, the the, the, uh, the book is taking up a lot of my time at the moment with, um, you know, these conversations, that kind of thing. Um, oh, I'll have something about, um, writing around the World Cup, I think. Um, and then, yeah, I'll get back to it. Just like the library! Just like the library! Just like the library!